Let's pray together. Our dear Father, we pray that you would bless this time together. We pray that you would cause faith to rise, for love to grow, for our hearts to really believe this morning in the risen Christ who has come into this world, who can even invade our hearts today. So we pray that in all of the anxieties that perhaps cloud our minds today, perhaps even the things that we look forward to, that we would be able to, in these moments, listen patiently to God's word. There is life and there is a truth here that we need to hear. And so we do pray that this would be a time of uh, rejuvenation, a time of encouragement, a time of conviction, a time of returning to the Lord. Uh, do these things uh, in ways that we don't know fully to ask and in ways that you can do far more abundantly. Help us in these hours uh, together, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that happen when we hear about the story of God in the Bible, anytime you hear it preached or taught or even read as Anne read for us this morning, is that it usually elicits some kind of a response from us. Anytime you hear God's word, the effect it has one way or another is to elicit a response from us. Uh, because the reality is that the content in the Bible it's content that's more than just musings or like an op-ed that you might read in a magazine or newspaper. It's more than just good morals or a path to find happiness in your life. Because some books, right, if you read it and grab a cup of coffee, some books can make you feel warm inside like you're cradled in the hands of a million feathers. They just make you feel warm and fuzzy and it's wonderful. But the Bible often feels more like sandpaper rubbing against your skin because the content in this is not just for us to feel good. There's content in here that's made for and more profound than just that. Uh, the reading of scriptures, or when you even hear this morning God's word preached to you, uh, there is a sense in which you will respond in, in a variety of ways. In fact, when Jesus was on this earth, as he walked and lived and did his ministry, people usually uh, either hated Jesus or they loved him. There was usually not anything in between as he lived. You were either holding on to every word that he was saying or you were seething with anger in your heart. Uh, you were either, either inviting him over to your home and throwing parties and enjoying times together or you were literally in the scriptures, it says, inviting him to a cliff so that you can throw him over the cliff. Uh, there was usually not any middle ground when you were confronted, encountered Jesus Christ. That's the kind of polarizing figure that he was in this world, that he was when he existed and walked the earth, and even now today. He's polarizing. You, you will respond to him one way or another. And so even as we'll consider some of the content of this book, in, in Acts specifically, today ask yourself, as you hear, as you have read even this morning together, as you hear God's word preached, as you are confronted with Jesus Christ, how will I respond? What will I believe? What will I feel when I hear the gospel, the message of the cross, this scripture preached and read this morning? Because here's the reality of these moments together week after week. We come in week after week. Think of how many Sundays, if you've been in the church for a long time, think of how many Sundays you've come in week after week. The reason, listen, that we do this week after week, what happens to us as we hear God's word is that Jesus is so polarizing because he says things of ultimate truth and reality. So as we come in week after week, we are again tuning our hearts to believe this, to, to center our lives on this. This is not just uh, self-help. This is not just something that we come to, to just make ourselves 
feel better. This is not musings or op-eds. This is truth that we are confronted with this morning. That's the reason that it feels like sandpaper against our skin rather than feathers tickling us. Because there's hard words in these scriptures. Uh, the, the reality of what happens when you are confronted with gospel truth in the Bible is that it begins to peel away, even as a sandpaper does, beyond the surface, beneath who you really are. It begins to reveal and surface what really drives you, what fears you have, what you think about this life, what you think about life after this life, what, what makes you tick, what are your joys, what do you really value in life. The scriptures have a way of doing that for us. And this morning, as we ourselves are confronted with the claims of truth in this book, it should elicit a response to us this morning as we hear it. And that's what I hope for us. Whether you've been in the church like this for, like this for decades or whether you are just exploring faith or have no consideration at all for Jesus, if you're hearing these words, how will you respond? How will you respond 30 minutes from now? In fact, our text today has three people who all consider Jesus Christ, the, the, the God, the, the Son of God of Scriptures, all who encounter and consider Jesus Christ, and they actually respond very differently. Three people who actually consider the same things, and yet all three responding differently. And the passage that Anne read for us this morning from Acts 26, that's where we're primarily going to be spending our time today. And yet to set the stage for Acts 26... We're going we're gonna to review, sort of fly over Acts 25 to set the stage for what we're considering in Acts 26. So here's how we'll approach this text today, Acts 25 and 26. Chapter 25 will set the stage for Paul and what's going to happen. And then once we get to chapter 26, verses 1 through 26 is Paul's defense, as we'll hear. And then from 27 to the end in 32 is going to be Agrippa's response, right? Setting the stage for Paul. Paul's defense, and then Agrippa's response. So first, setting the stage for Paul in chapter 25. If you remember last week, Ajay preached, and we saw that this man Paul, a follower, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he wound, was wound up in prison yet again. I mean, week after week, I mean, year after year, this brother Paul ends up in prison over and over again. And yet this time, we read at the end of Acts 24, that it's actually for two years. Two years, Paul is, is in prison, and not just as any regular prisoner, this Paul has no charges uh, against him. There, there's no proof against him. So you may have heard of folks who have been in jail wrongly accused and been in there for years and years. Paul has been in jail for two years, and yet there's, no, there's not even a charge against him, false or true. And, and you got to imagine what, what it's like night after night for Paul to be in this prison cell wondering why he's there without any actual charges against him. And at the end of chapter 24, you have this governor, Felix, who is replaced by Governor Festus. And as Governor Festus comes into the scene, he's all of a sudden brought into this reality of there's this, there's this man named Paul without charges in prison. What do I do? So he has to figure all these things out. And so he sort of rushes in to figure out what do we do with this man? How do I approach them? Because he's getting pressure from the Jews, and he's getting pressure from those in, in government. What are we going to do with this man who is uncharged in prison? And Paul, you've got to think, he's in prison. He knows right, that, that right outside the prison doors are Jewish people who desire and thirst for blood. They want Paul dead. They don't even want him tried. Would you hear even in, in, in chapter 25, in verse 3, it says that they want him to be tried in Jerusalem, not because they want justice, but they want to ambush him on the way to the trial and kill him. 
They have, they have a desire to end this man, Paul's life. And so the stakes for Paul could not be higher. It's literally life or death that Paul is in prison. And what will happen next will be very important to, to his own life. And so eventually, Festus mans up and he asks Paul, listen, we've got to do something. What would you like to do? And in verse 9, Festus asks Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem? And you can be tried with me with these, with these charges. You can be tried with me. And what does Paul say in verse 10? Paul says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now listen, Paul, it's apparent, he doesn't want to go to Jerusalem and be tried. Why? Well, first, we just said a moment ago, if on the way there, he's likely dead. And he knows that. He knows that traveling to Jerusalem, the Jews want him dead. And so for his own protection and safety, he says, no, I'm not going. Two, he's also a Roman citizen. So he's saying, if I'm a Roman citizen, try me in a Roman court. But three, and almost most importantly, for this, Paul is trying to get to Rome because it's strategic for the gospel to even advance. It's not ultimately about his, his safety. It's not ultimately, ultimately about being a Roman citizen. For Paul, he wants to end up in Rome, so he saves some money on a plane ticket. And the quickest way to get to Rome is by saying, I appeal to Caesar, and he gets a quick one-way ticket to Rome instantly to, be, uh, to give his appeal before Caesar. Right? So Paul wants to get there, and he's got his way by appealing to Caesar. And yet, Festus knows, wait, we actually have nothing on this guy, so what am I even going to tell Caesar when, when I appeal to Caesar? And so it says that eventually, worried and unsure of how to get this Paul to Caesar, he gets the ear of King Agrippa. And this is this new figure that comes into the text. He gets the ear of King Agrippa because he doesn't know how to appeal to Caesar without actually bringing legitimate charges against Paul. And so Agrippa agrees to hear Paul's case himself. And we heard last week, who is King Agrippa? What family is King Agrippa actually from? King Agrippa comes from this long-standing history, a family heritage that is very familiar with Jesus, and not in a good way. King Agrippa comes from this long lineage. It was Agrippa's great-grandfather, as we heard last week, King Herod, who tried to kill Jesus as he was just a baby. It was King Agrippa's great-uncle, who killed John the Baptist and later tried Jesus himself. It was King Agrippa's own dad who imprisoned Peter and beheaded James. So here, Agrippa is poised to carry on the violent family tradition of trying to eliminate Christianity and all those who follow Jesus. He's, he's very poised to carry on that tradition. Of course he wants to hear what Paul is saying. So the day comes. The, the day of Paul's trial finally, before King Agrippa comes. And here's how this scene is now set in chapter 25, verses 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. All right, so if you can imagine the scene, here comes King Agrippa along with his sister Bernice in great pomp. When you picture this scene, you've got to think the Oscars on steroids times 100. Because you not only have political elites and kings and 
folks who are in power, but you also have all of their officers and armies and battalions and all these people coming in. You have hundreds and hundreds of people coming in decked out in their finest tuxes and in their robes and in their gowns, and you've got, you've got guards with all of their weapons. You, you've got a scene that is just incredibly dramatic. In fact, Luke says that they came with great pomp, right, to use even that language of this was, this was elaborate, this was over the top, not only governors and rulers, but and their shiny rings, but all of this extra artillery, extra artillery and force and guards coming with them. And you can picture these elite of, of these people coming in, sort of doing that cupped wave that you do when you're, when you're important and famous, right? People throwing flowers at them as they roll in with their chariots, and then they finally get seated in their cushy seats, and who comes in? Who comes in after this great pomp? The scriptures say that measly, paltry, Unimpressive Paul is now brought in, and Festus invites him to come into the scene. It's not even me that's saying that Paul is measly and unimpressive. In fact, Paul himself, in the letter to Corinthians, says that he himself knows that people consider him to have a weak bodily presence. I mean, he knows he's unimpressive. He knows that there's nothing to look at him to feel scared about or intimidated about. He has a weak bodily presence is what it says in the Bible, his own account of his own self. So not only does he not have charisma or charm or a daunting presence, but he's also bound with chains to his hands and to his feet. And as you see this scene, you see this great pomp you see the glitz and glamour, the purple robes and the, and the rings and the chariots and all of the armies coming around. And then you have this little measly, paltry man, pathetic Paul, walking in with chains on his hands and chains on his feet. And you immediately think, Paul, you are out of your element in these moments. Why don't you just try to escape? Why don't you just try to get out of this moment? Why don't you just... Do what you can to get out of this horrible moment because this can't end well with you. After all, it's Agrippa who's hearing you. We know what Agrippa is capable of. How could you possibly speak here? How could you possibly speak with any confidence before this kind of an elite group? But as the stage is set for Paul, it's wonderful to see that Paul, with, with being unimpressive, nothing wonderful to look at, Paul does not stand quiet or timid here. He does not stand quiet or timid. In fact, as we enter into chapter 26 and quickly even look ahead at how this scene actually ends, we'll come back. But even if, as you look at what Paul will say and how the people will respond, would you look at verse 24? This is after Paul gives his defense. The Festus, Governor Festus that we mentioned a moment ago, responds to what Paul says that we'll cover in a moment. And he says, and as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you, Paul, out of your mind. So the question, of course, is what did Paul say that could cause such a forceful response? For Festus to, to mid-defense of Paul, say, you're out of your mind, Paul. What, what did Paul say? And not only that, but how could Paul speak with such daring boldness before kings and queens and the very people who could end his very life? What has he said, and how is he able to say these things? Uh, here's why I think he can do this. Here's why I think Paul, being in the setting that he is, being the person that he is, can actually say what he's saying with such boldness. I think it's simply because what he is saying is true, and Paul believes 
what he is saying is actually true. He believes what he is saying. Uh, One pastor I heard this week says, Paul is persuasive when he speaks because Paul is persuaded. Paul, he's persuasive because he himself is persuaded without any doubt that what he is saying is true. Uh, Listen, a man or a woman with the deep-seated conviction that what they live for, the words that they speak, is without any doubt true, that man or that woman can stand before any opposition with the integrity that, in the end, that they are in the right. And there's an integrity, there's a, there's a conscience that you have that you're saying, I don't care what's coming, I know I'm right. I know the words that I'm saying, I know the life I'm living is true. And this is why Paul said in chapter 25, verses 11, he says, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. I'm, my, my end game here is not just to see, simply escape death. Would you hear the confidence, the, the moxie in Paul's words when he says that? There's no fear in life or fear before men because he believes in the truth of a king that is higher than these very men, decked out in the very materials that his maker has created. His, his, his view of this whole thing is so different. They're not the ones in charge. They're not the ones who are ultimate. He believes in a higher power. He believes in the true words that he's actually saying with his mouth. And so Paul speaks persuasively because Paul himself is a persuaded man. And so, now the stage is set. You've got this group of people, Paul on one side, this great pomp on the other. Festus introduces Paul to speak before King Agrippa. And Paul will seek to show in his defense that Christianity is true in three ways. As he's about to set forth on his defense, Paul will seek to show that Christianity is actually true in three ways, more than these ways, but today, in these three ways, Christianity is true. First, it's religiously true. Or you can even say for the Jewish people, socially true, because religion and culture and society was one. For these people, it was religiously true, biblically true, socially true that Christianity is real and true. Reading from chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Notice as Paul starts off in his defense, Paul points out that Agrippa is familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Paul, as he starts out on this defense, he is appealing to the the knowledge of Agrippa that he has over Judaism. He, He knows he's familiar with it. He knows he has a relation with Judaism. It's not unfamiliar to him at all. He actually has familiarity through his own family line. The religion that Paul is appealing to, Agrippa is well aware of. It's not foreign to him. And so Paul is asking him, he's begging, he's saying, listen, don't be distracted. Don't, be, don't judge me before I speak. 
I want you to hear this because I'm saying you're going to understand what I'm saying. I know you understand Judaism. I know you understand the words that I will speak. So please, I beg you, listen to me patiently, carefully. Don't be distracted. And so as he makes his case, as we said last week, Paul is aiming to show also Agrippa and all who are hearing him that the Christian faith is not a departure from Judaism. Right? The Christian faith is not a departure from Judaism. Christianity is not some new religion or some new sect or some new trendy innovation that Paul and a few others came up with. Christianity is not something just that pops up out of nowhere in the middle of history, out of nowhere. He's saying, no, this is connected through all the years, through all the centuries, for millennia, this is connected to something much bigger than ourselves. He actually takes great pains to say that this is what? Our religion. This is our religion. This is the promise made by our fathers to our tribes over and over again, trying to convince them, listen, this is not just me and a few people. This is, this is us. This is our people. This is our religion. This is, this is a thing that we, are, we have given our lives to for, for generations, for years, because the prophets and the promise has been exactly for this moment, Agrippa. All who hear me, the prophets, the promise, all of it was leading to this moment. Imagine these people, people have come into this scene expecting to just simply try this man, Paul. And Paul now comes back and says, listen, you've come to this moment in a very special moment for you. Because you're realizing now that everything that you've lived for has now come to a head in this moment. Because the hope has always been Messiah. The hope has always been Messiah. The expectation has always been resurrection. And I know it's not what you expected. I know this thing is not what you thought it would be. And yet, would you know, Jesus Christ is the very hope of Israel. Your hope. It's not just my hope. It is our hope. Paul is saying it's not just mine. Paul is saying essentially this. Would you hear how offensive this could feel? Paul is essentially saying that to the true Jew, to remain a Jew, must become a Christian. That's the connection he's making. He is saying that if you believe in the prophets, if you believe in the promise, you must believe in the risen Christ. He's saying that there is no two religions. There's nothing like that. There is one stream. There is one, one religion that this thing is connected to. And he's saying, listen, if you're in with this, you're continuing. You're being authentic to your own religion, to our religion. Because as one commentator put it, this was the hope which they gave their life to, the things for which they worshipped, maintained generation after generation by the 12 tribes of Israel, to the unceasing, think of that, the unceasing services, morning and evening, 52 weeks a year, this is what they gave their life to. This was the hope that they had for generations, generation after generation, that God would come and save and rescue. And in this moment, the great irony is this, that Paul is actually being prosecuted for the very hope that they waited for for so long. He's actually being prosecuted. He's on trial for their very hope. And would you think of the irony of that moment? In fact, this is not just the hope of Israel, but this is the hope of the world, that Christ would come in, not just for Jew, but also for Gentile and everyone in the world. Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, the hope that we all long for. And yet, Paul is on trial, perhaps to his death, for the very hope that they had anticipated and waited for for so long. So Paul is saying, listen, 
Christianity is true because this is what you've waited for. This is religiously true, socially true for you, biblically true for you. And second, Paul says, listen, it is, it is religiously true, but it's also personally true. He says it's personally true. Truth for us can't be determined based on your experience or my experience alone. It can't be just because I feel it and so it's right. And yet we would also say that truth isn't determined and yet truth can't be experienced but for a person apart from experience, right? It's, it's through experience, through a personal encounter that you can actually encounter and experience that. And so the personal testimony of, of you and I really matter, right? Otherwise you have theory and you have doctrine that's never connected to a person. And so Paul is saying, this is my story. This is my story. Reading from verse 9, Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Now, Paul is saying here, essentially, we've seen this week after week. He's essentially saying, I've been in the very seat that you've been in. I have cast my vote in the same way that you've cast your vote. I've hit the gavel the same way that you've hit the gavel. I've cast judgment on many Christians just like me, just like you seek to do towards me. In fact, the Greek words Paul uses in verse 11, the way that he even describes himself, is in raging fury. In the Greek, that actually translates loosely to insane, like manic. He's saying he was acting insanely towards Christians. He was the one who was acting insanely when he was persecuting and killing Christians. And yet, what happened to Paul? We know his story by now. Verse 12, he says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What has happened to Paul? What is Paul's story? We've said over and over again, the persecutor has turned preacher. The one who was a murderer has become a son of the very God that he has been persecuting for so long. The raging murderer has turned. The Jew who opposed Christians, most of all, the un most unlikely man, has been converted to believe in Jesus Christ because he has personally encountered Jesus Christ. This man is persuaded because he has encountered, he knows Jesus. And you, you ask the question in your heart as you even hear Paul's story, do you know Jesus? Paul went from darkness to light. He went from insane to sane. 
The scales fell off of his eyes. His ears began to open. His heart actually, when he heard the gospel, when he encountered Jesus as you are right now, his heart began to beat in love, in, in attraction towards this thing. Does your heart beat for Jesus this morning? Does mine? What do you hear when you hear the gospel this morning? Paul knows his Savior. He knows his Maker. In this passage, you hear Jesus talking about goads. What the heck is goads? If you don't know what goads is, it's this stick that has usually this sharp metal end to it that you use to prod and poke at animals. We know that animals will wander and go away, especially sheep, right? They're, they're dumb animals. They'll go off a cliff without even thinking twice about it. And so you have this, you have a shepherd who will often use a goad to, to prod them and prick them for their own good, for, for their own safety, that they would not destroy themselves. And so Jesus is asking Paul here, Paul, why do you resist? Why are you resisting? Why are you kicking against the goads? And so Jesus is saying, you've resisted for so long. Isn't it hurting you? resisting, kicking against the goad is going to hurt you. It's wounding you. And as Paul hears that, surely he remembers resisting. Surely he remembers even casting down the vote for a man like Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the scriptures, casting down the vote against him that he might be killed. And as he remembers that now before the risen Christ, the one that he was persecuting for so long, face to face, he need not resist any longer. He's encountered his maker he need not kick against the goats, for Jesus is working from heaven to win Paul to himself in this moment. And what's more, Jesus tells Paul in verse 18 that not only is he pulling him from darkness to light, but he's telling him, I'm telling you to go and tell everyone. Tell them they can be removed from darkness into light, meet their maker, know Jesus, know me as their savior. And he continues in verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. As soon as Paul says these words, that it is Jesus Christ who has come to suffer, that he is the first among the dead, what happens? It's what we read before from Festus. Festus freaks out. He can't but help himself, and he speaks out, and what does he say in verse 24? And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. What happens is that as Paul is making his defense before Agrippa, Festus jumps in and protests in the middle of his defense. Paul keeps his cool and says, Festus, no, excellent Festus. I'm not out of my mind. I'm actually speaking true and rational words. And what's more, most excellent Festus, I wasn't really speaking to you. I was actually talking to Agrippa. So in the most kindest way, Paul tries to let him down and say, I know you're hearing, and I know this is rubbing up against you, but to be honest, I'm not talking to you. I am talking, and I'm appealing to Agrippa because I know that he knows what I'm saying. I know that he, he can look back and see something happening. I, I know that he can look back and see the thread that has been woven. Hear what Paul is saying here. 
He is saying, listen, as we've said, the first two things, my words are not just based on a religious proof. My, my words are not even just based on a personal proof. My words are true and rational words. So that's Paul's third point, that Christianity is actually a rational thing to believe in. It's not an unreasonable faith. It is foolish and folly to those who do not believe, and yet this thing is a reasonable, rational faith. These are rational words that Paul is speaking. And I think in our world today, as you hear that, whether you're a Christian or not sitting here, that's a really difficult thing for you to understand, for me to understand and even believe, that there is, there is a rationality, that there's reason to this thing, that there's actually proof for Christianity existing, the risen Christ existing. Hear me, Christianity is not an irrational faith. Christianity is not just a mythology that we wish was true, that we hope is true, that all these things that were gathered around week after week, the scripture that we're believing, we're just hoping, dear God, that this is true. Christianity is not mythology. It's not just one among many options that we can choose and pick from. Friends, Christianity is about an actual risen Savior who existed in history and is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. Christianity is true because Jesus Christ has actually risen from the dead. What does Paul continue to say to communicate that? Right? He says in verse 26, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has actually escaped his notice. It's not like these things have happened in a corner. Right? You hear the words that Paul is using to show, listen, you know this, Agrippa. Paul is saying, Festus, you may not know. I get that. This is resurrection, Jesus, Messiah, all of those things. None of those things registered with you because you're, you're a Gentile. This is not something you're familiar with. But Agrippa, you know. You know and you've seen. Paul says, Agrippa, none of this has been done in a corner somewhere. Christianity did not emerge and form with a bunch of initial people who believed in this thing and thought this would be a, a fun project and witnessed all these miracles and things happening in a small secret group of people. That's not how it happened. No, this movement happened in public before all, before thousands of witnesses, before people all over the area where Jesus actually walked. This gospel is not communicated, would you hear me? Even as Paul said later in, in 1 Corinthians, this gospel is not communicated with deception. It's not communicated with underhanded tactics, as though we have to exaggerate and convince one another, we've got to believe this is true. This thing is actually true because there is a risen Christ. Hear this, Agrippa himself, right, was about eight years old when Jesus died. As one commentator says, it's as if Paul is looking at Agrippa in the face and saying, listen, if you've lived, anyone, anyone has lived here for the past 20 years, you could not laugh off what we are saying. You know the things that have happened. You've talked to the people who have said, I've seen the risen Christ. He looks at Agrippa and says, Agrippa, you know this is true. I stand on trial and yet you know in your heart this is true. Isn't that amazing? That Paul is speaking with that boldness. He's saying, Agrippa, you can say whatever you want. You know this is true. Think of even the miracles that were recorded in the Gospels. In fact, John, in his gospel, says that Jesus performed so many miracles that there was not even enough room to fit all of them in the scriptures. People being healed from disease, people being released from demons, people being raised from death to life. 
one after another, people being healed miraculously by Jesus Christ. If you watch Action News tonight and you hear someone saying something crazy like they were healed from cancer or they were raised from the dead or they knew someone who was, you would think you are crazy. You're absolutely bonkers. We would say with Festus, you're insane. But what if another person came and then another person and then hundreds and then one after another, they said the same thing about the same Jesus over and over again? You'd imagine that there was a conversation somewhere where someone saw the risen Lazarus and said, listen, I know this is all crazy, but I know he rose because I still remember the smell of stench of death on him. That's how much I remember. I, that, wasn't just, that wasn't just me hallucinating. That wasn't me just imagining. I remember I saw. What's more, you remember the empty tomb that after Jesus rose from the dead, 500 witnesses at once and more later, saw the risen Christ appear to them. 500 at once. I mean, it's one thing for one or two people to hallucinate something. You could do that. But 500 people seeing the same person, the same time, the risen Christ out of the tomb at once. There is a risen Christ. There is a true and risen Lord that has come out of the grave rejoicing over, victor, over the victory of sin and death. There is a risen Savior. And if nothing else, all the witnesses, all the people who have seen him, think of all the people who did see him and then gave their lives to him. Not just gave their lives to him, but gave their lives for him, for the sake of the gospel. People killed and martyred. Over and over again, people who witnessed Jesus with their eyes and said, this thing is real. I've witnessed him. I'm giving my life over to this. People, dear friends, do not give their lives over for a hoax. You simply don't commit your life over for some gain. You commit your life to something like this because you have encountered and you have witnessed the risen Christ. There is a real Savior. There is a risen Christ. And after Paul gives these three proofs, these three evidences for the resurrected Christ, Paul wraps up his defense by saying wisely but lovingly in verse 27, King Agrippa, you've heard me. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You know the Jewish faith. I know that I've told you my testimony. You've seen it yourself. I know, I know that you believe. Confidently, Paul says, I know that you believe. And then you're waiting, right? You, you can't even believe that Paul has asked that. How is the, the one who is on trial asking the one who has put him on trial back a question? Imagine that scene. The, the, the crowd around them gasps at Paul as he asks back this question to Agrippa. And Agrippa, how does he respond? He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And just like that, just like that with that response, this man, Agrippa, king dodges the question, suppresses his conscience, and deflects the question. That's what he does here. He deflects. Because you, you know he believes. Uh, because he didn't respond the way that Festus responded, saying, Paul, you're insane, you're done, you're dead. He didn't do any of that. He responded with a question, right? Uh, what, what do politicians do when usually they're put into a corner and they can't answer the question that's been asked them because they know they're wrong? They respond by deflecting with another question and another question. And you never answer the question. Paul knows that Agrippa knows that what he is saying is true. 
And yet, in this response, as he dodges and deflects, this response by Agrippa is eternally, fatefully tragic. Because Agrippa knew that Paul was right, and he added this inward conviction, right? He saw and felt and was moved and affected, but he could get no further, as one preacher has said. He could, he could get no further. He saw, but he could not act. He was not far from the kingdom of God, but he halted right outside the door. And that's what Agrippa has done. And he never, it seems like in the scriptures, has never turned back and never has believed since then. In the old King James Version, I love how it's translated there. For those of you who, who have read the King James Version, it says in verse 28, this is how it translates. Agrippa responds to Paul by saying, Paul, almost thou persuades me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuades me to be a Christian. Has a more tragic statement ever been uttered by a person? For to be almost persuaded is the same as not to be persuaded at all. To be almost Christian, listen, if you are sitting here, it's to never have believed or been convinced at all. To be almost there is to be not there at all. And as this dialogue closes, Paul responds to his response by saying this. Right? Agrippa asks him, do you seek to persuade me to this? And Paul responds, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I desire not just you, but I desire Bernice and Festus and all these kings and all the crowd who are here, all the officers, not just you, but all of you, that you might be just as I am. And then as you read that, you realize that for Paul, freedom has actually never been his goal. Comfort for Paul has never been his goal. Rather, you hear that the goal for Paul is that folks might know Jesus, that the gospel might be proclaimed. Because as you read at the end of this chapter, we won't go into it, but as you read at the end of this chapter, as Bernice and Festus and the rulers of that time come together, and they say, Paul could have been freed if he just didn't appeal to Caesar. He could have been set free, but what did Paul do? He appealed to Caesar. And what does that tell you? He's saying, listen, my goal is not to be set free from these chains. My goal is that you would be set free from your chains. Because there was one who was chained up for me. And I'm set free because he was chained. He's saying, these chains are your victory. Would you hear me? Me standing here right now is your freedom, is your salvation, is an opportunity for you to hope in the God of Israel. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He speaks directly. He's saying, yeah. I am trying to persuade you. I'm very much trying to convert you. Absolutely, 100%. That they would be just like he is. That's what he says. That you would be just like I am, except for these chains. Like the King James Version also puts this. It says that you would be all together as I am. That's what Paul says. That you, all of you, would be all together as I am. To be converted as I am. To turn from and to see Jesus as I have. To receive grace and forgiveness like I, Saul, the persecutor, the Jew, have. I desire for you to live as I have, with joy unhindered. Not under the law, but under the grace and love of God. I desire for you to be just as I am, to hope as I have. Not in this world or its offerings, but hope in the risen Son of God and in the world to come. So as we hear all of that, as we said in the, in the beginning, right? 
How do we respond when you are confronted with the gospel? When you are confronted with truth, not opinion, with the very words of God. As Paul did 2,000 years ago, I stand here, listen, desiring to persuade my own heart and you to trust in Jesus. Will you respond as Festus did and consider all of this insane? This is bonkers. We've gone off the deep end. This is not true. There is no Savior who's risen. Who is a, I'm offended at the thought. There's nothing like this at all. I'd say, dear friend, turn to Jesus this morning. Will you respond like Agrippa did and almost believe? Only, almost believe. Will you stand at the door of faith and yet turn around from it? Would you who consider yourself to be even a Christian, if you are here, many of you who consider yourself to be a Christian, yet are not truly persuaded even in your heart that this thing is true, or struggle with doubt, or struggle to believe this morning, would you turn to Jesus, find and believe in Christ today in a way that he is real, he is true, there is a risen Savior who has come for you. Would you turn and believe? Would you today, like Paul, be altogether Christ's in everything? Why wait? Why resist? Why turn around? Why go halfway? Would you throw yourself this morning into the loving arms of God? He stands waiting for us. I'll close with these words from the great preacher George Whitfield of the 18th century. I'll close with this and then we'll pray. Let us give to God our whole hearts and no longer halt between two opinions. If the world be God, let us serve that. If pleasure be a God, let us serve that. But if the Lord, he be God, let us, oh, let us serve him alone. Alas, why, why should we stand out any longer? Why should we be so in love with slavery as not wholly to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, which, like so many spiritual chains, bind down our souls and hinder them from flying up to God? So this morning, respond with me to Jesus Christ and his gospel that seeks to set us free and give us a reality that is beyond this world because of his resurrection. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts in these moments now that produce faith, that rekindle faith, that removes our fears, that sees our doubts, that comforts us in the truth of the gospel, that there is a risen Savior who has lived, who has died, who has resurrected for us. And that means life for us. That means forgiveness from sin for us. That means life after this life for us. That means in this life, we can have joy. We can hope in internal things. We can put all of our life into perspective because the God who is our maker has not left us, but he has come into this world. And he has given us a life that is eternal and wonderful. So we pray, Lord, that all the distractions, all the anxieties, all the concerns, all the worries, all the pushback, all the resistance, that you would seize them all and turn us to Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. There's no one else we need more than him. If he be God, may we give our entire lives over to him even in this moment. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.